If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi Quarterly Women's Social Club. Days and Convicted. Blue Party Radio. Show Kane. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Let's prepare for a landing, Brad. Okay. In a 40G gravity atmosphere, strange thing happens to man's body and mind. Barry Sullivan and Norma Bengel take you into the most fantastic science fiction adventure ever filmed. Emergency! Emergency! Conditions desperate. Little chance of survival. Help us. Mark, look! What have you got? The Galliot. Bert, get me a fix on this right now. Wes, Brad, controls. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the Bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Salas. No, just his body. And I'm just one of many beings on this planet. And we're fighting to survive. It's imperative that our race continue to exist. We arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies. You are our last chance. No, never. We'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Where's Bela when you need him? Also with us this week is author Troy Howarth. Hi, how are you? This week we are looking at Mario Bava's 1965 science fiction thriller, Planet of the Vampires, also known as Terror in Space, also known as a whole bunch of other things. The film stars Barry Sullivan as Mark Marqueray, the captain of a pair of starships, the Galliot and the Argos, that crash land on the planet Aura. Members of the crew seem to turn into homicidal maniacs, and this is just one of the strange things that the remaining members of the Argos undergo on Aura. Troy, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Planet of the Vampires, and what did you think of it, sir? I think I was probably about 
12 years old, if I had to guess. I had known of it before from reading some of the uh, books on horror films that I used to pick up out of the library all the time. There's a book about vampire films in particular that had a lot about it in it, although it has to be noted, it's not really a conventional vampire movie at all. I picked up a VHS of it, the old HBO video. I don't really remember that I was blown away by it at first. I think at the time I was still kind of struggling with the dubbing in these movies, uh, which can be very off-putting for a lot of people. You know, when you're only that age, you kind of go into a movie called Planet of the Vampires and you expect vampires, and it didn't deliver that. So I think I was a little bit disappointed in some respects, although I did, I appreciated the visual aspect of it, and it definitely had a very eerie quality. But I don't. It, I don't think it was a movie that I really came to fully appreciate until I saw it on DVD later on. I think they put it out around. I'd say it was around the year 2001. They put it out through MGM, and that was the time that I watched it, and I was really properly uh, impressed by it for the first time. I think I saw it uh, when you sent it to me a couple of months ago to watch it for the show. Uh, I knew it existed and had been out there, but I had never gotten around to it. But I had watched other films by uh, Mario Bava before, especially more of the um, straight sort of horror stuff or even, I guess, the Giallo-type uh, films that he had done before. So I wasn't really familiar with this one, but I have to agree, it's not your typical film that you would consider vampires. kind of hard to consider them vampires because I don't think there's a lot of blood-sucking in here. Almost kind of reminded me when I saw it of sort of a uh, science fiction version of a zombie film in one way, especially when we talked about before, Mike, the idea of zombies being uh, under the control or taking over uh, something as opposed to being um, just this sort of mindless horde that we get into with the Romero films. Yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Deadites, you know, this whole like join us kind of an idea to it. But yeah, I saw this one probably mid-90s, rented it on VHS, and even though it was on VHS, it still just kind of blew me away. The color scheme of it, the the look of it, the fantastic outfits that everybody is wearing, and then just kind of the mood and the pacing and really how Bava stretched the dollar on this and made this really big-looking science fiction film for probably close to $1.98. And so I was just really kind of taken aback by it. And I don't know why I never tracked down more Bava films after I watched this one. I guess maybe because I had heard that this one stands alone uh, as his sole science fiction entry. Though I did recently watch uh, Danger Diabolique for the first time maybe two years ago. And again, completely blown away by it. So I don't know why I haven't gone out and sought out more Mario Bava, but Troy, since you're here with us, the author of The Haunted World of Mario Bava, hopefully you can uh, shed a little light on where we should start and where we should go with our investigations of Bava, and really kind of who he is and, and why people still talk about him all these years afterwards. I mean, this is a big year for Bava fans, right? Well, yeah, this would be his 100th birthday if he was still with us. Um, obviously, he's not. He died in 1980. He was just shy of 66 years old, although if you would have looked at pictures of him, which you can see some in my book, if I may plug it, you would think he was a lot older. Uh, as a matter of fact, Martin Scorsese, the, the great director, uh, apparently met Bava in the late 70s, and he assumed he was in his 80s. Uh, and I can understand why. If you look at the pictures of him, he was a complete workaholic. His vice was his work, so to speak, and he devoted everything in his being to his work to 
going into making his own films and also to helping other people very often without credit. So he basically became old before his time. He was also a big-time chain smoker. That didn't help either. As to who he was and, and why people were talking about him now, what's interesting is that it wasn't until, I don't know, probably, I want to say sometime in the 90s, that people started to really talk about him a lot more. There had been uh, other writers, uh, such as obviously Tim Lucas, who have devoted a great deal of time and energy to writing about his work. But it wasn't until, I think really in the 90s, when directors like uh, Tim Burton and Tarantino and uh, also Scorsese, William Friedkin, started referencing him as a, uh, a major inspiration, that people started to take him a little bit more seriously. Uh, when his movies were made, Primarily in the 60s and 70s, uh, they were just treated as pretty much exploitation trash. But it's it's one thing um, if a critic says, well, this guy is pretty good and he's uh, well worth exploring. It's another thing when you have somebody like Scorsese come out and say he's one of my favorite directors. And I think that gave him a certain validity. Yeah, we've talked before on this show about other uh, films and directors. Actually, Rob and I, before we started recording tonight, just uh, we're talking about Alan Barron and uh, Blast of Silence. So, yeah, we've talked about other folks that Scorsese has recommended. And his opinion really does carry a lot of weight. And he has helped out so much with kind of spreading the gospel of filmmakers and films that we might not have really taken a closer look at. I think the thing that's interesting is you bring it up as the 1990s, and then that's where I was introduced to Mario Bava, but it was not through high-end people saying this guy was good. It was actually through Mystery Science Theater, because Danger Mm -hmm. Diabolique was on Mystery Science Theater, and I think there were several other of his films, obviously uh, American edits and dubbed versions, that they tore apart rather savagely. So that's where his name came to the fore for me. And for a long time, I would say that I equated him with sort of an Italian version of someone like a Jess Franco, who was a guy yeah. who just made a ton of films, mostly in the horror genre on low budgets in Italy. I don't believe they did any other ones that he directed. I know that he did, they did um, Hercules, the original Steve Reeves one that he photographed, and he did partly direct that, but um, he's only credited as cinematographer and special effects on it. Diabolic, yes, was definitely that. That was the last episode. A lot of people were upset that the movie was was put on there. Although I, you know, I love the film, and I watched the episode, and I honestly I thought they kind of, yes, it, it was it was obviously meant to be a joke, but I felt like within that they were semi respectful towards it. Um, I didn't get the impression that they were just completely ripping it apart. I think they understood that it was a movie that was meant to be laughed with, not at. A lot of times, Riff Tracks will do films where it's just like, why are you making fun of this film when there are so many other horrible films that you could be taking a swipe at? Like, we've talked about Starship Troopers, and it's like, yeah, if you don't get it, you can make fun of the movie, but otherwise, it's like, why are you picking on these really good films when there's The Room out there, there's, you know, Neil Breen's films, there's so many other things, but okay, whatever. I I showed the film uh, when I was in college to uh, a group of people, and uh, before it came on, I I told them, I said, you know, it's okay to laugh at this, because it is meant to be funny. Um, Irony is not a new concept. As a matter of fact, his films were, on the whole, very ironic. I actually think that a lot of his movies are basically dark comedies, not always necessarily laugh-a-minute type movies, and and, uh, arguably the ones that he did that were a little more darkly funny 
were far more successful than a couple of the attempts he made at making flat-out sort of farcical comedies. But he did have a, a very sardonic sense of humor that comes through in a lot of his movies, and Theobolic definitely shows that. So let's talk a little bit more about Planet of the Vampires here. There's not a ton of stuff that really happens in it, but yet I am with this movie fully invested for all, what, 83 minutes of it as it goes along. Mm -hmm. I'm always wondering what's going to happen next. It keeps me in suspense, and it just – he plays with the atmospherics of it so much. I'm riveted every single time I've seen it. I've probably have watched it four or five times now, and, and even though I know exactly what's going to happen, I still feel like I am along for the ride with this film. I'm just like, show me what you want to show me. I, I'm ready to, to take it, and I just really kind of enjoy... You know, it's, it's a very pulpy sci-fi feel to it, but it still really seems to reel me in every single time. Well, he touched on something interesting, and that's, that's one of the points that I try to make in, in my book, is that directors like Bava and other uh, directors of that ilk that are very strong in terms of style, there's a tendency to sort of dismiss them as superficial. Uh, they're not good storytellers. Yes, he can, he can frame a shot, and it's very pretty and everything, but so what? So there's no substance to it. I think very often that the substance is in the style, and I think... Um, Planet of the Vampires um, is one of three films that he did, from my point of view, that have absolutely wonderful and, and really delicious um, twist endings. Now, you don't see where this is going to go, but it's one of, in, in particular, three films that I can think of that, that always make me smile at the end because he really does pull the rug out from under you, and it works, it, and it holds up over repeat viewings as well. Uh, I think that uh, very often he's given credit um, for being as good with telling a story as he is. Sometimes through purely visual means, if you watch his movie uh, Black Sabbath, there's a wonderful story called The Drop of Water, which is pretty much just a woman breaking down and going insane due to a guilty conscience. There's not a lot of story, quote-unquote story, but it, it has tremendous mood and atmosphere, and he conveys so much through the visuals, cutting, and the use of sound that unfortunately was lost whenever they did the American version, AIP, slathered this Les Baxter soundtrack over it that completely overbears everything. But getting back to Planet of the Vampires, it, it does have the ability to hold your attention for the entire running time. Uh, I just revisited it tonight just to sort of refresh myself, and even though I've seen it probably a dozen times already. And, yeah, it does. It, it holds your interest, even though inevitably there are things about it that maybe look a little dated now. That's okay. That's all part of the film's ambiance, and that's all part of its charm. The story itself, I think, is, is very engaging. One of the things that you talk about it feeling a tad dated, and I am actually was kind of amazed when I looked at the date on it that it was 1965 because mm -hmm. the feel of it feels more like a science fiction film of the 50s, maybe 10 years or eight years mm -hmm. before in terms of its uh, style choices and things like that. I mean outside of the sort of almost S&M-like um, motorcycle mm -hmm. outfits that the crew wears. Well, yeah, I mean in a way that's true. You could also argue it's like a really – super stylish episode of Star Trek. You know, like, let's let's get Mario Bava into direct episode of Star Trek and uh, let him work his magic on it. Uh, I think that's that's not an unfair description either. Uh, part of that could also be due to the fact that it was his first and may have been looking more towards uh, the old-fashioned films 
granted, at that point, science fiction hadn't really started to uh, change and evolve to what it would become just a couple years later with 2001. I guess two of the things that really stand out for me in this, speaking of look and feel, and probably touched on the one, are the outfits, these kind of high-collared, I guess they look like leather, but they kind of have that feel of uh, latex outfits a little bit. And then the yellow piping, they're all black, but with this yellow piping that's very striking and these kind of very interesting helmets that they have that give them like a, a widow's peak. So it kind of reminds me, I guess maybe that's where I'm kind of getting vampires from is the high collars of, you know, like a Bella Lugosi with the that widow's peak as well from the helmets. That's cool to me, and then the shape of the the spaceships, kind of more this horseshoe shape, which really, when I think about flying saucers in the 50s, they're flying saucers, or they're big phallic rocket ships. They're not these you know interesting shapes that they had in this film, so I really kind of appreciated that. And I guess one more thing that I really like about this one, I kind of get a real Invasion of the Body Snatchers feel from this film, which you know that I'm a fan of. That's because the monsters aren't the the big rubber creatures or anything. The monsters are them. The monsters are the captain's brother, the crew from the other ship, the people that are on the, the main ship. So it's like you never know who is uh, a good guy or a bad guy if they're quote-unquote alive or dead. So you know, who are these people and the terror can come from anywhere at any time. And that's one of the things that I like about this. Well, the monsters are us. Uh, that's kind of the point. Well, of course, you know, the original Italian title uh, meant terror out of space. And uh, that has kind of a, almost sort of a Lovecraft type vibe to it. And, and Baba did love Lovecraft, if we'll pardon the expression. He was very much uh, a fan of his writing and of his uh, very evocative descriptions and so forth. When they acquired the movie, well, AIP did have a hand in the making of it, so it's not like they picked it up later on. Whatever point the title was decided to be playing with the vampires, they may have taken that from the um, from the design of the of the spacesuits. Uh, that's quite possible. I said in my book, it's almost like a S and M uh, sort of fashion spread. Maybe a more uh, authentic or accurate title would have been Planet of the Ghouls or or Planet of the Zombies. I, I don't know. But maybe, that, again, that maybe that didn't have the same kind of um, audience-grabbing quality of Planet of the Vampires had. Did the idea begin with Baba or from the, the, the short story, the one night of 24, 21 hours, and yeah. then kind of move to Ib Melchior, who was working for AIP? Or how did that transition happen to go from Italy to the United States, then back to Italy? Well, again, there's this kind of conception that Baba himself was always quick to play up in interviews that, that he was just um, a hack that would film anything that was given to him. Now, it's true to say that, yes, he did do plenty of films that didn't originate with him, but he did also originate some projects, and this, this was one that he did actually start. As you noted, there was a story called One Night of 21 Hours, uh, written by a man named Renato, and I hope I don't pronounce this wrong, Pestrinero. Uh, I hope I've got that right. Uh, I know how to spell it anyway, even if I don't know how to pronounce it. And he uh, had read this story uh, in a sort of pulp magazine and was very impressed with it. Uh, the story had been published in 1960, and he went out and he bought the rights from the author himself uh, very cheaply. He took the project to a producer named Fulvio Luchisano, who was with Italian International, 
He was doing some work with Italian International at that time with films like Savage Gringo, which was a spaghetti western that he directed without credit, and uh, the very unfortunate Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. A script was commissioned. Uh, it was written, and then Luchasano sent it to AIP to try and interest them in getting some financing for it. AIP, uh, the producer there, uh, Lewis M. Hayward, was not impressed with the script at all. And at that point, Sid Melchior uh, was brought on to completely rewrite it. It's pretty much his script, although Baba inevitably improvised and added some things in of his own. So he also had a hand in the finished script as well. Melchior's an interesting guy. What did you kind of find out about him when you were doing your research? Uh, I didn't really do a lot of research when it came to him uh, as much as all that. I'm, I'm aware of his other credits in sci-fi field, uh, films like, um, uh, well, he did the Robinson Crusoe on Mars, I believe, and uh, The Angry Red Planet and, and things like that. Uh, obviously, uh, a man who gravitated towards science fiction and fantasy. I doubt very much that Melchior was unduly aware of who Baba was uh, when he came on board to do this, but... Uh, it ended up being a pretty satisfactory collaboration, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, Melchior was, was pleased with the way the movie turned out, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, really they did it with absolutely no money whatsoever. And I found it interesting to see the kind of, and I, I know this was fairly typical of Italian films, but the, the mixing of the nationalities on set was kind of nice. I like the, uh, the one Brazilian actress quite a bit. She was a replacement, actually. The original casting for that I had discovered through the Cookies' book, I wasn't aware of this before, was actually Susan Hart, who was an AIP uh, sort of fixture. I think, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying she was married to James Nicholson, uh, the co-head of the company, or she's at least his uh, sort of squeeze. She was supposed to do it for whatever reason. Uh, she dropped out and Norma Bengel, the Brazilian actress, was brought in to do it. Well, it was it had American financing, so they needed to have an American name, so they got Barry Sullivan to play the lead. There was Spanish money, so it was a good idea to get somebody like Norma Bengel on board, and obviously also Italian money, so you have all kinds of Italian actors in there as well, including a couple of actors who had appeared in some of Bob's other films. Massimo Ligi, for example, had been in Black Sabbath, Blood and Black Lace. A very young uh, Ivan Rasimov uh, appears in the film as one of the crew members. Uh, he would go on to become kind of a fixture in Jally and also the uh, uh, Italian police films of the 70s. He also appeared in uh, some of the Italian cannibal-type movies. He would also go on to appear in Shock, which was Bob's last uh, directorial film. Now, who is he in Planet of the Vampires? A very minor role in point of fact is barely even sort of has a chance to register. His character's name is Carter. Doesn't really have a whole lot to do except sort of guard the uh, the spaceship when everybody's running around and, and the bodies are disappearing. It's kind of a thankless part, but uh, he would go on to play the psychiatrist in shock. If I remember right, Carter was an unstoppable sex machine. <laughs> well, I don't remember that, but you, you may well be onto something there. Well, they also had to get him, too, so... One of the things that I was kind of surprised about when I was looking up different versions of this film, well, when I was looking up this film, was just how many different versions of it there are. You had mentioned the the Les Baxter score, and that seems kind of um, something that happened to a lot of these uh, dubbed Italian films. Is that right? Well, actually, on this one, for once, AIP did not tinker with the music. Uh, it was written by a musician named Gino Marinuzzi, 
the only film that he scored for Baba. It's it's actually pretty interesting, almost kind of an avant-garde type score. It's a lot of sort of electronic uh, sound effects. And it's not a terribly, you know, sort of hummable or, or whistleable soundtrack, but it's very effective in the context of the movie. It's not a score that I'll sit down and listen to the same degree that I'll listen to one of Silvio Cipriani's scores for Baba, for example, but it's very effective in the movie itself. Les Baxter typically did uh, rescore all the other movies that AIP picked up going back to Black Sunday through uh, Baron Blood. The score on this one, they decided to leave it alone, I guess, because they figured it wasn't too distractingly European-sounding or too poppy. Uh, I think that that kind of bothered them sometimes because Italian films do tend to go for this very different experimental type of sound. But the score was changed later on when the film was put out on video in the 80s when Orion acquired the uh, MGM or the AIP library, I should say. They lost the rights to the music because that belonged to a different shareholder. So sooner than go out and buy the rights to this music for this obscure film, they hired a guy named Kendall Schmidt to rescore the movie from top to bottom. This wasn't the only one they did that with. They did it with uh, Witchfinder General, the Michael Reeves movie, and uh, Scream and Scream Again, uh, amongst other things. It seemed like there were three that I was seeing. It was AIP, the Italian version of it, and then the MGM version. Well, what what happened was you know, the, the film came out, uh, AIP released it. They didn't mess with the score this time. Typically they did, but this time they, they did leave the original score intact. In the 80s, the film was rescored on video, but then when MGM put the movie out on DVD in the early 2000s, they were able to go back and get the original score and put it back onto it. The difference between the American and Italian versions, obviously apart from the, the, the dialogue, uh, is down to, I think, about two or three minutes worth of footage. And it's not like the AIP version was missing any significant scenes or gore or nudity or anything like that. It was just simply down to them feeling the pace was a little slow, so they cut down some of the long bears a little bit. Um, shots or that stretch on a little bit longer in the Italian version are, are cut down. Uh, but other than that, they, they really didn't do much to tinker with this one. I looked everywhere for an English translation of One Night of 21 Hours, and I could not find it other than that it had been released on some obscure magazine for in the early 80s or something. And I was just like, yeah, I couldn't find it anywhere. I even went out on eBay, and I was like, listen, I'll pay for it. Nothing. Couldn't find it anywhere. Did, have you ever tracked down a copy? Unfortunately, no. Um, I, you know, I've, I've managed to read some of the, the, uh, the more significant uh, stories that Baba used as, as inspiration. Uh, the Gogol story, uh, the V for uh, Black Sunday, for example, or the family of the Bertolac, which inspired the Bertolac segment of Black Sabbath. But no, uh, this one I just know. Anything I've read about it has been from secondhand sources, and uh, I've never been able to read it myself. One of the things about the production of the film is, like you said, it does look like he made it on a buck ninety-eight. And I, I read somewhere today online about how he said that he had two boulders and a couple mm -hmm. of lights and some fog yeah. machines, and he tried to do everything uh, practical. I guess there were no opticals. Yeah. Everything was done with um, forced perspective and mirrors and things like that to try and make things Broken look bigger. And, 
yeah, yeah. To, to make things look um, more uh, amazing than it really was. And in, in terms of the uh, the lighting and, and, and the design and everything like that, I mean, it definitely has a certain look. The, the one thing that I really like about the film is that it reminds me of, and I think this is another reason why I keep flashing back to a period maybe a few years before 1965, is it looks like the cover of cheap pulp novels, science fiction pulp mm-hmm. novels, in terms of you know the bright light and the very um, you know sort of diffuse. Uh, angles and things like that. I mean, he was very, uh, very deliberate in in the look, and it seems like like the deliberate look was all based out of austerity and not having any money. That's the key thing is to understand is that yes, it was done for pennies, but it wasn't done carelessly. Bava and his his crew, including uh, production designer Giorgio Giovannini, uh, were were brilliant craftsmen, and they were very well versed in the art of taking you know, the proverbial sow's ear and making a silk purse out of it. It's not something that's easy to do, and it's one of the reasons why Baba's work holds up much better than some of the other films. Uh, compare this movie, I don't know if you either of you have seen any of the movies that Antonio Margariti was doing at that time, the, the space operas that he was making, but they, they look kind of sad now. They look they look a little bit pathetic, uh, whereas I think Baba's film has a tremendous unity of style to it and there's a there is that real sense that they did have an idea and I, I like the description of it being like a pulp uh cover i think that was also delivered because baba loves stuff like that and i think he did have a very concrete specific idea of what he wanted and um you know even though he was working on on a pittance and uh he didn't have time and everything else that was what he liked he he enjoyed working under the gun and improvising and coming up with things out of nothing. Yeah, I really kind of appreciated that I could sometimes see the smoke and mirrors, you know, or at least it was enough that I could, I was really paying attention to a lot of that stuff, at least in the the last few times that I watched it, just trying to figure out exactly how he was doing it, because the sets look huge, and I know they're not that big. I mean, they look like they go on forever. You see the horizon and everything, and I'm just like, okay, how is he doing this? How is he making it seem that we're looking off into infinity on this planet, and we can see these mountains way off in the distance? And it was just so nice to have that sense of depth and 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 width of everything and that gravitas to everything even though I knew that it really wasn't there. I, I, I enjoyed being fooled. Even if you compare it to a more expensive film from around that time, I always think of a movie like um, Roger Vadim's Barbarella, which was actually kind of a companion piece to uh, his movie Diabolic. Uh, everything is on, on the surface. It, it looks very much like everything is sort of smacked right up in front of the camera, and there isn't that sense of depth, and there isn't that sense of a real world created out of whole cloth. Um, Baba had done something like that before. He did a movie called Hercules in a Haunted World, and he literally, I mean, he had no sets. He claimed, now he may have been exaggerating, but I don't think he was much, that he really only had, uh, again, a couple of plastic boulders left over from uh, uh, Chinachita, Sword and Sandal Epic, and uh, a couple of pillars, and he just created all the rest through lighting and old-fashioned tricks that, some of them, yes, they may be a little obvious now. I mean, you can only go so far with making a miniature spaceship look convincing. But a lot of it, really, when you become aware of the fact that that entire planet is just fake and it's all sort of uh, multiple explosions and 
uh, smoke and mirrors and everything else. It's, it's, uh, there's something wonderfully handcrafted about that. And that, that reminds me a bit of something that you see, uh, Ray Harryhausen special effects that, that are so much more, they have character, I guess, uh, as opposed to what we see now where it just has this kind of, uh, antiseptic, sterile quality to it. It's because ones and zeros don't have weight. And that's the thing. And even though, yes, he was working with things that were very crude and very cheap, yeah, if you were to project this movie for a, a modern audience, a lot of people would laugh at it. And uh, I, I, that's one reason that I don't have a great desire to see a lot of these films with a kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it, conventional audience. But uh, the people that appreciate it, they, they understand that what he did was almost, it was kind of miraculous in a way. And the fact that we're still watching these films and still talking about them is, is testimony to that. So I guess we should probably address the elephant that's in the room as far as how Planet of the Vampires compares or doesn't compare to Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979, right? And we've talked to... Actually, we've talked quite a bit about Alien lately when we talked about Hodorowsky's Dune uh, a few episodes ago, but we haven't really mentioned it on here. I I think I probably read, maybe back in the mid-90s, I might have read that this was kind of a precursor for Alien, and I really hadn't read that much about It, the Terror Beyond Space, or whatever the other film is that kind of has a a similar plot as well. (laughs) I have to say, without saying anything i was watching planet of the vampires my wife walked in maybe like quarter of the way through sat down she started watching it with with me and once they got to the large skeleton the the former inhabitant of the planet she goes oh is that one of the space jockeys and mm-hmm. I was like, okay. <laughs> so it's not just yeah. uber geeks like me that see kind of the similarities, but she was right on top of it as well. I think it's been exaggerated a little bit in some circles. I, I do think that if the terror from beyond space was, was the main template, I frankly don't believe that Ridley Scott, sorry, Sir Ridley Scott, uh, is the type of guy that's going to sit down and watch a movie called Planet of the Vampires. I could be wrong, but I just don't get that impression from him. But I do believe that Dan O'Bannon, who was uh, an uber geek like ourselves, uh, was familiar with the film, and he wrote the original script. And I would not be surprised, even if he didn't remember it, he may have seen it, um, you know, uh, half drunk or half stoned at some uh, late-night drive-in triple feature. But I believe that he saw it, and consciously or subconsciously, he was evoking that. Uh, That scene in particular, very, very much so. there, there is that sense in both movies of a landscape that's more sort of impressionistic uh, or implied than it actually seemed. You know, in both films, even though Alien, although it wasn't as big a budget movie as, as Aliens was, um, Ridley Scott obviously had more money on that film than Baba probably had on ten of his movies, and uh, he could afford to build the big sets. But even there, there's a lot of that kind of misty, smoky, uh, foggy ambiance, and it's it's a very similar kind of an approach. Uh, do I think that really Scott was was paying homage to Mario Bava? No, I don't. But I do think that Dan O'Bannon, when he wrote it, was sort of doing a little checklist of old B science fiction movies that he had seen. Now, Rob, did you see that when you were watching it? Oh yeah, definitely. 
and it became more pronounced after I was looking around at various resources and someone brought it up and I was like, oh yeah, you know, there are various things in terms of like you were talking about the mist and smoke and the ship and then the crew sort of being taken over or disappearing, which, you know, happens in other things. But I, I did sort of get this feel that it was, uh, to, to go back to what you had said earlier, Troy, about um, uh, Star Trek. So it had this Star Trek feel, and then it also had this alien feel sort of together, and it was kind of interesting. You know, I mean, obviously you don't have uh, the queen rolling around, um, you know, taking out the cat and you know chest bursting right. scene and all that stuff but there's there's some definite stuff in there that i think um you can see as the tie and, and that's kind of what's interesting is when you look at you know what you would consider alien even though now it's you know 35 years ago still a rather contemporary and modern science fiction film and the fact that it did maybe quote or bring forward an echo from an earlier film to go, okay, here, here's kind of a, an early blueprint. Now let's build from this blueprint well, and, and add on to it. Right. It, it is the horror sci-fi hybrid that everybody's heard of. Whether you've seen it or not, everybody's heard of the film. I think that um, even if Ridley Scott himself seems to be almost been embarrassed by it now, that it's only a horror film, you know, so he would go and make uh, Prometheus and, and show us how uh, a really intelligent science fiction movie should be. Well, if you've seen that, you can see what an exercise in futility that was. Uh, I don't think people are going to be talking about that one in the same way that we're talking about Alien or, or indeed Planet of the Vampire. The thing about Alien was it was a haunted house movie in outer space, and it had all those uh, different touchstones of uh, this, the cheap scares and things that were beautifully done. And... Um, that's the type of, of movie that uh, Planet of the Vampires was, too. And if you want to hear us take a baseball bat to Prometheus, go back and listen to the Blade Runner episode for anyone who's listening in. <laughs> Less said about that one, the better, probably. Well, I do want to say one more thing about it, though. I found it very interesting that the original ending that Melchior seemed to have for it, for Planet of the Vampires, actually seemed to mirror... Prometheus even more than the current version of Planet of the Vampires as far as, and this is where we're getting into into big time spoilers here, is at the end when they, the Orans have possessed two of our, our heroes, we find out that our heroes are not actually Earthlings and that they are heading to this small planet, third from the star named Sol. Apparently the original had them possessed and going to this planet and they become our Adam and Eve, and basically so that our DNA, our, ourselves, are made up of this alien species plus this Oren mm. species that is inhabiting their bodies, and that to me is totally like the beginning of Prometheus, where yeah. he kind of seeds the waters with his own DNA, and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they did it, they would have done it better in Planet of the Vampires, and even the way that they do it now is better than Prometheus. Well, <laughs> that's one of those endings that, intellectually speaking, it sounds really neat. But if you were to think about how it would have been done at the time, I think he was probably right not to do it. I'm not sure if that was Melchior's idea or not. I, I, I seem to have a notion that that might have been uh, Lewis and Hayward, uh, the producer at AIP, that he thought, it, well, wouldn't it be neat if, if they land on uh, Earth and it's prehistoric times and it's, it's Adam and Eve and, and all that? I could be wrong. It might have been Melchior. I, I'm not sure about that. But 
on a certain level, yes, it could have been interesting. If it had been done right, it may have really went some added subtext to the movie. But I like the way it ends now, uh, even if it, uh, some people suggested it's kind of a, sort of a Twilight Zone, uh, last minute, uh, dark comic sort of ending. But I, I don't have a problem with that. And I, again, that's one of the reasons that I think out of all the films, it, it really is one of the, one of the top surprising endings, because uh, well, I know when I watched it, I didn't know that that was coming. I don't know whether people now, with everything available on the internet, if they have the ability to be able to watch a movie this old and still be surprised by it, or if they've already read the whole plot before they've seen it. But when I saw it, I didn't know it was coming, and it definitely threw me for a loop. I give Melchior a lot of credit for a lot of things, and that's I probably give him more credit than maybe he he is even due. But, I mean, the guy was responsible for Reptilicus, which I love a lot, and he wrote the short story The Racer that Death Race 2000 was based on, so loosely based on. So I really, you know, I, I cut the guy a lot of slack. Yeah, and he was definitely, he was a good repository of ideas, and uh, my impression, based on everything that I've read, was that he, this was a happy experience for him. He was, admittedly, it wasn't his story. Uh, it was based on... Now, again, how close it was based on the original short story, that I don't know, but I think it's a, a huge, pretty close to the original concept, as far as I know. And then he is effectively rewriting a script that two or three other writers had written that had been rejected. Uh, within that, he was obviously able to impose a certain amount of his own personality on it, and I think he was very clever with his plotting, and, and Baba was very skillful in his staging of it uh, to maximize all those ideas. Okay, we're going to take a break and play a few important messages and we'll be right back. Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. Listeners of the Projection Booth Podcast can enjoy 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com when you use the promotion code BOOTH. You also get free shipping and three free adult DVDs. Once again, that promotional code is BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H. Visit adamandeve.com today. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent at ProudlyResents.com, and you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun.
we're back, and we're talking about Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires. We're joined this week by Troy Howarth, author of The Haunted World of Mario Bava, which has been revised and was recently re-released by Midnight Marquee Press. So, Troy, I'm curious, how did you first come to write a book about Mario Bava? <laughs> That's almost a book in itself. It would have been in the mid-'90s. Um, I had graduated from high school in 1995. I took a year off before going on to college. I just wanted to take a year or two to sort of relax. Around that time, uh, Elite Entertainment put out the Laserdisc of Baron Blood and Lisa and the Devil. And uh, I bought it, and that sort of inspired me to go out and, and start buying more and more of his movies uh, through Gray Market at that time because you couldn't get them now, uh, the way that you can now, I should say. And I, I had been aware of his movies since I was a child. I had seen Baron Blood uh, probably when I was about five years old. So I knew who he was. I was aware of his, his standing, but it, it just struck me as odd the more I was reading that there wasn't any books out there on him. Now, at that time, I had no idea that uh, uh, Tim Lucas was planning to write a book. Um, it had been in the offing for quite some time. I was ignorant of this. So I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll write a... I was going to write a monograph is what I was going to do. And then I was in... By the time I was in college, I had a professor who uh, I took the monograph to, and I showed it to him, and he said, you've got a book here. And I sort of laughed at that as an idea. I didn't believe that I had the capacity to be able to write a book. Uh, but he helped me, and he pushed me in the right direction, and he encouraged me, and gradually expanded it out to a book form. Um, and then at that point, I sent a chapter to McFarland uh, in the U.S. They uh, were interested. They wanted it. I happened to be talking to a friend of mine online about it, and he, he told me, you really should try FAB Press. I had no idea who they were. I'd never heard of them before. But I took his advice, and I, I sent off a chapter to them, and they also were interested in knowing uh, by that point what kind of production value they could give the book. I decided to go with them. And, uh, well, I guess you say the rest is history. It came out in 2002. It did very well. It sold out. Uh, I won a few prizes, um, none of which I actually got to, to get myself, unfortunately. They went to the publishers. But um, even so, it was nice that it came out, and uh, I had some people contact me who were very nice and said that um, uh, they enjoyed the book, and uh, a couple of them told me that they were going to use it as a textbook in their, in their classes, which was, you know, for me, that was about as high a praise as you could get. Uh, so on that level, I felt I had done uh, what I set out to do as far as drawing some attention to Bob's work. Um, then obviously... Uh, in more recent years, I had decided that I would like to put it out again because people kept writing to me and saying, when is it going to come out again? I'd like to buy a copy. Uh, FAB had their own plans, and, and the book didn't fit into that, so the rights had reverted to me, and eventually I found Midnight Marquee, and uh, Gary was very enthusiastic about putting it out again, and uh, I found myself in a position of literally having to thing because uh, I didn't have... Um, an ability to be able to pull it off of the uh, the disc, the old floppy disc that I had it on, and that gave me an opportunity to go back and fix some things that I got wrong, uh, add in some new things, and just generally uh, reshape it into a better book. And I do believe that the new version is, is significantly improved. So what kind of updates did you do in this version versus the first book? Obviously, things that I had screwed up, got wrong, uh, I was able to fix them. I was able to get uh, Lamberto Bava, who... 
since we're talking about Planet of Vampires, this was actually the first film that he assisted his father on. Uh, he would go on to assist him for the rest of his uh, career as a, as a director, uh, Mario, that is, uh, until his death in 1980. Then he became a director in his own right. I was able to get Barbara Steele to do an interview about Black Sunday. Uh, that was a, a genuine treat, getting to talk to her. I had passed the questions on to a friend of mine, uh, Russ Lanier, who did the interview. Uh, she wanted to make some adjustments to it, so I was able to talk to her on the phone, and I had a wonderful time talking to her. She has a lot of stories to tell. Just generally was able to tighten it, make it better. Uh, one of the things that I didn't like about the old edition was that I was basically told that I had to have in-depth plot synopsis. And I, I hate plot synopsis because I feel like if you've seen the film, you don't need me to recount it for you. If you haven't seen it, well, then why would you want to read about it, you know, uh, scene by scene? But at the time, since these movies weren't available so readily as they are now, they wanted that. So it was a lot wordier before in that area. So I was able to chop that down, which which pleased me. And just generally, you know, over time, obviously, opinions change. One of his films that I wasn't crazy about at the time was Hatchet for the Honeymoon, which I've grown to love. So the new book reflects that. What were some of your biggest challenges when you were doing the research on this? Well, I'd say probably the biggest handicap for me is I don't speak Italian. And so that does pose a problem when it comes to something like, hey, I'd like to read the story uh, One Night of 21 Hours. Oh, crap, it's only available in Italian. Well, I guess I can't read it. That is a definite handicap. Uh, there's also the handicap that obviously Bobby himself is long dead. Um, he died when I was only three years old. So obviously, uh, failing having a, a Ouija board session, there was no way I was going to be able to contact him and get his take on it. It's a lot easier now well, with the uh, the wonderful newfangled technology that we have, of Facebook and things like that to connect with people. Uh, when I did it originally, even though it was only, you know, what we're talking about 14 years ago, roughly, that I was in the throes of writing it, it was a lot harder to be able to get a hold of information and be able to double-check a lot of facts that, yes, at the time I got them wrong, but now I'm, I'm able to get them right. Those are some of the challenges that you face. When going through his filmography and watching as much as you could, both then and then now, what do you see as sort of the common themes or commonalities that sort of bind his work together? A, a misconception about him is he he just did movies that were very pretty. And so if you're a stylist, you know, obviously your movies can't possibly have any kind of substance to them. Well, that's, that's not true. Not surprisingly, given the fact that he was a cinematographer before he became a director and he was very visual, I, I think the big theme that runs through his work is the deceptive nature of appearances. Um, things are not what they appear to be, and you can see that very vividly in Planet of the Vampires with its sort of paranoia of who is right, who is uh, normal and who isn't, which kind of anticipates uh, John Carpenter's uh, version of the thing. Although, of course, the story itself that it was based on uh, predated uh, Planet of the Vampires by a decade. That is a theme that runs throughout it uh, in, a, in a general kind of um, uh, very nihilistic, downbeat perspective about humanity, that people effectively are willing to sell themselves very, very cheap, and uh, that the world is frequently a very unfriendly and unpleasant place to be in. I think that was one of the reasons that he loved stylization so much. He liked to create his own world because he really wasn't very comfortable in the world that he lived in. So Planet of the Vampires was his only, as far as I know, his only foray into like a harder sci-fi. Why was that? Why didn't he do other sci-fi flicks? 
Well, uh, in my uh, new revised version of the book, you uh, will be able to read a chapter that a good friend of mine, Roberto Curti, uh, wrote about how his last projects, which actually were science fiction, they didn't get made. And large part of the reason that uh, they didn't get made was he passed away. So he was interested in doing more. I think some of it could be the fact that Margariti, Antonio Margariti had that kind of part of the market cornered. They were perceived to be rivals. Whether that's really true or not, some people say that's been exaggerated. Other people say, no, they, they really didn't get along. I don't know. Science fiction is difficult to do, particularly when you're trying to convey something big and you don't have any money. I don't think that was a deterrent for him, but it was probably just projects, finding the right material that appealed to him and... uh he just happened to find a science fiction story with this one that, that appealed to him. And it's worth noting, too, that although they're not pure science fiction movies, he did do a couple other movies that can be kind of crammed into that genre, to like uh, Diabolic, which we talked about before, everybody's favorite, Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, which, you know, if you haven't seen it, uh, you, you owe yourself a treat. He made quite a few movies. He said, you know, he was constantly churning them out, and I was wondering, how did he do? I mean, was he uh, a hit factory, or did he have a few that uh, kind of fell flat on their face in terms of box office and reception at the time? Funnily enough, uh, Dr. Goldfoot was the only film that he made in uh, that, that was a big hit in Italy. Uh, the reason for that was he had a comedy duo called Franco and Ciccio in the movie, which if you've never heard of them, don't worry about it. Most people haven't, side of Italy, but they were huge. And that movie was, was a big hit for him at the Italian box office. It was a flop everywhere else in the world, but it did very well in Italy. His other movies, I you know, his, his sort of sword and sandal movies and, and movies, Viking movies, things like that, they did okay in Italy, but the horror films flopped. One after the other, they flopped. Italian horror didn't really become popular in Italy until Dario Argento came along. Uh, and, and that had a lot to do with Argento's sort of relentless, I don't want to say pimping, but sort of pushing of himself uh, on the public as sort of the new Hitchcock, the Italian Hitchcock. He, he was very good with PR and, and promoting himself. Bava did not want that kind of attention. So anytime he was interviewed, he would say, oh, my, my, my movies are nothing but bullshit. So that was a different kind of mentality. Outside of Italy, movies like Black Sunday and Blood and Black Lace and Black Sabbath and Baron Blood were very successful. They made a lot of money, and that was one reason that AIP wanted to keep working with him and picking up a lot of his movies, uh, at least the movies that they realized they could release over here. You brought up uh, Argento and wanted to get your take on Bava as possibly the um, <laughs> the the reason behind Argento and the uh, and the Giallo, and specifically the uh, the Black Glove Killer. Do we have Mr. Bava to uh, thank for that? Well, I, you know, I, I I think there's no denying that. Without Bava, there's no Argeno, but you could also say without Hitchcock, there's no Argeno, or without Ingmar Bergman. For Lang, yes, uh, Argeno has his influences, and Bava is one of them, although he tends to downplay it. I think he got a little bit irritated after a certain point of hearing people compare him with him all the time, uh, kind of in the same way that uh, the is always being compared to Hitchcock. Uh, but let's face it, there's there's reason for that, and, and it's fair that it's done. The, the black glove killer in, in the yellow genre that you can really trace it back to Ivan Piri, uh, which was a movie that Bava photographed and co-directed with Carlo Freda. It was the first Italian horror film of the sound era. You do have the the killer with black black gloves in that movie as well. Bava started the Giallo on film, not 
in any other context than it on film. He started it. I think uh, the girl knew too much was the first really authentic uh, Italian giallo film. There had been thrillers before then made in Italy going all the way back to at least the thirties, but they didn't have that kind of lurid sensibility that, that the giallo was all about. So yes, at the end of the day, Argeno's debt to, to Bava is substantial. Although I, I wouldn't say that he is uh, just a mere sort of copycat or imitator of his. So you've mentioned a few films already. Um, Dr. Goldfoot, I'm going to have to add to my um, watch list. What other ones should people be rushing out and seeing of his? Well, for God's sake, don't rush out and see Dr. Goldfoot. Uh, that was a mistake for everybody involved. Not entirely his fault. I don't want to make excuses for him, but it was just... Uh, the wrong film at the wrong time, and I think even Orson Welles would have failed with that one. Truly, I think all of his films, to some degree, are worth seeing. I don't really recommend his westerns. He wasn't particularly well-suited to that type of thing. Dr. Goldfoot, if you watch it, watch the Italian version, because it is a, a much better film. The AIP version was completely overhauled without his input, and I, so much so I don't even think it really is uh, one of his films. But the Italian version has some clever things in it. It's worth seeing. Also, if you're a Vincent Price fan, yes, you know, it's just campy and silly, but you can look at it. Essential ones, for me, from my point of view, Lease on the Devil, Kill Baby Kill, Blood and Black Lace, Twitch of the Death Nerve, Black Sabbath, The Whip in the Body, and uh, a really magnificent film that he did that didn't get finished until years after he was dead called Rabbit Dogs. Uh, this is only really sort of quote-unquote realistic movie. And... Uh, I was talking before about why he likes stylization and everything. Well, if you watch Rabbit Dogs and you think that's the way he's the world, no one would be much care for it. So for yourself, I mean, you've gotten familiar with his filmography. You've watched all these. You've written the book. Uh, what's your favorite? Uh, Lisa and the Devil is my Desert Island movie. Uh, they always ask, you know, if you were stranded on the Desert Island, what, what movie would you have with you? Well, if I, if I was only allowed to have one movie... That would be it. That's not to say it's my favorite movie of all time. It isn't. Uh, I don't even think it makes my top ten. But it is a movie that I love. Uh, to me, it just encompasses so much of what he was about. The morbid humor, the sort of lyrical romanticism, the uh, the creepiness, uh, and just the general weirdness of it is, is wonderful. Charlie Savalas, I think, is... is um, He's extraordinary, and it's a performance people love or hate. I've had discussions where people say, oh, he ruins the movie for me, and I, whatever. For me, he's, he was perfect as the devil. Uh, well, not that he's ever explicitly called the devil, but we understand that he probably is. That would be my favorite uh, out of all of them. Uh, that's not the conventional choice. If you were to ask most people, they would say Black Sunday. Very cool. Well, hey, we're going to take another break and play a trailer for next week's show. Have you been to the Garden of Eden before? Uh, no, uh, I just said I could look around. Certainly, but I'm afraid you can't touch. Not for free, anyhow. Are you interested in a high colonic? I, I have no idea. Uh, here we have a girl with a, with a wide range of symptoms, including disobedience. Now then, the secret to maintaining proper health and therefore an obedient temperament, is to properly cleanse the body of all vile humors. October 16th. I feel that at last my life has some kind of purpose. I've always known that the filthy, hoary element of the city was growing and getting bigger. But I never knew what, what to do about it. Now I know what I can do. 
I couldn't want her if she was dirty. But maybe she can be cleaned out. If I cleaned her out, she could be clean again. And she could be all right. She could have good thoughts. Now she's dirty. And there's shit thoughts, puke thoughts. But I can fix that. I'll give her an enema. She has vile humors. That's why she's acting like this. I'll clean, her, I'll clean out her vile humors. She might not understand right away because she's having bad thoughts. But after it's over, she'll thank me. I know she will. She'll be glad I cleaned her out. You're just a pig. You like to get fucked. Okay, pig. Oh. Oh. Now you're getting fucked just like you like. Oh. You love to get fucked, don't you? That's right. It's Travis Bickle with an enema bag as we talk about the adult film Water Power next week. We'll be joined by Heather Drain to talk about this film and well as interviews with its director and two stars, including Sharon Mitchell, who spills the beans on celebrity enemas that she's given, so don't miss that one. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Troy Howard, for stopping by to talk about Planet of the Vampires and his book, recently re-released and revised, The Haunted World of Mario Bava. Now, Troy, where's the best place for people to pick up the book and keep up with what you're doing? You can go to the Midnight Marquee website, which is www.midmar.com. You can order it through there. Uh, you can also get it through Amazon. Uh, it is supposed to be available eventually through the Amazon affiliates in Europe and Canada and so forth. I don't think it's listed as of yesterday when I looked. It's still not listed, but you can get it on Amazon in the U.S. Uh, keep up with me. Uh, you can certainly, I'm on Facebook. I'm readily available. Um, uh, I'm always willing to field questions that anybody has about any of these projects that I'm working on. And uh, I'm uh, currently doing my best to sort of promote uh, the upcoming book I have on the Jallo film called So Deadly, So Perverse. It's going to be in two volumes. first part will be out in around Christmas time, I believe, and the second part will follow six months after that. So I'm around. I'm not hard to get a hold of, and uh, I thank you for letting me be on the show. Thanks, Troy, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. And thanks, for everyone, for listening. You can do us a solid by going over to iTunes and leaving us some stars and a review. The reviews have been slow in coming in lately, so we'd appreciate if you went over and left us some kind words. The more reviews we have, the closer we can get to taking over the world. flat on the ground but it's a sure one to five there'll be someone to jive you and try to keep bringing you down now 
for a while you might take that abuse and convince yourself to stay loose. But then one day he'll throw you away and say you're good for nobody's use. But then I'll come your way, turn your blackest night into day. When you're needing it bad, cause some rough times you've had, I'm gonna look at you and I'm gonna say, Who loves you, baby? And now you ought to know Well, I can't always let it show But now you really ought to know This is one thing I don't want to blow Baby, baby, won't you tell me Tell me what I want to know Baby, baby, won't you tell me Tell me what I want to know You wake up one day feeling ugly Thinking you're 10 or 12 pounds overweight But just know I don't care if there's gray in your hair If there's hair at all, I think that's just great Now this carnival life that we're riding Gives no one the room to start hiding So I don't want to hear that you've turned a deaf ear To my words and started backsliding Cause then I'll come your way Turn your blackest night into day When you're needing it bad, cause of rough times you've had, I'm gonna look you straight in the eye, baby, and I'm gonna say, Who loves you, baby? Who loves you, baby? By now you ought to know. Who loves you, baby? This is one thing I don't wanna blow. Baby, baby, won't you tell me? Tell me what I wanna know. Baby, baby, won't you tell me? Tell me what I wanna know. Baby, won't you tell me who loves you, baby? Tell me what I want to know. 